You're listening to a special bonus episode of a podcast of Spurious Morality. Welcome to a podcast of Spurious Morality. I'm Johnston, and with me I have Mansoor. Hello. And I have Jimmy. Hi. And uh, we, we're doing this special bonus episode to be released on the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. Uh, we are going to do a bit of a commentary on An Unearthly Child, the episode that started it all, and on the day of release is precisely 60 years old. Um, it, it, I think it's fair to say Doctor Who kind of hit the ground running. It just came, it, it started with a bang, this amazing sort of engaging, gripping episode that kind of came out of nowhere. So before we start our commentary, I'm just going to get a quick take from you both about what you think of it. So Mansour, do you want to go first? Yeah, um, so hit the ground running is exactly the right way to put it. Uh, I think you look at the pilot version of this episode, which we're not looking at today, like it has some differences, but like the core of it is, is even there in that pilot version. And then it just gets refined further in the, the broadcast version that we're going to watch today. Um, so yeah, like I think one of the best ever openings to a TV series ever, I'd say. And it's, I think the fact that they, they remounted it and recorded the second version, the eventually broadcast version, just does give it that polish that actually a lot of early Doctor Who doesn't have. It really is sort of very solid. The pacing's fantastic, and they have kind of ironed out any sort of little problems that there were in the pilot. So, yeah, it's it's an absolutely great start. Uh, what about you, Jimmy? Yeah, I think the fact that they got the chance to redo it and tweak it and fix it up definitely helped. I mean, the pilot version was pretty great, but... The version that actually went out is infinitely better and I just think all the regulars instantly captured the characters perfectly and had such a great dynamic. I think it's just the perfect start to the series. I think we're lucky that we got what we did. Yeah, it's it's an exceptional episode and it's I am glad that we got this polished version. I think the fact that it is so good it perhaps does contribute to the fact that Doctor Who continued to be as successful as it has been for 60 years now. Um, so any moment now we will do a bit of a countdown and we will begin the episode. So if you want to join us at home, uh, you might want to pause here and set up your copy of An Unearthly Child. Uh, sadly not on iPlayer, but we won't go into that. Um, but yeah, you may want to set it up now and then we will count down in a moment to that press play. Okay, so hopefully you are ready to watch An Unearthly Child with us now. So press play in five, four, three, two, 
one, let's begin. Even the title sequence is amazing straight away. Oh yeah, it's brilliant that they managed to do something so amazing on the 60s technology. It's remarkable. And it's actually really, really basic stuff. When you look at what they did, the process to use it, it's really, really simple. It's, it's basically tricks. a glitch. Uh, but used really effectively here. Proper moody opening, foggy. See, these sorts of shots, these are the sorts of things that make me a bit cautious about colorization of the whole era because this shot is designed for the moodiness of black and white, it feels like to me. Yeah, I find with most of the 60s stories, the black and white adds to the atmosphere so much. I just, I can't imagine them in colour. They're, they're too good how they are. I mean, it's interesting to see them tried as an experiment, but I yeah. always prefer the black and white, always. It, it's forgiving as well. So I think it's about mood and tone and composition, but also it sort of papers over some of the cracks of, um, you know, costumes and sets as well a little bit. Oh, Absolutely. I do like this sort of extended introduction sequence. You know, the theme carries on playing, which I can't think of any other Doctor Who episode where the theme kind of keeps going into the action. And there it is, the TARDIS, and something mysterious about that police box. It's just setting up a mystery that, okay, it's solved by the end of the episode, but it's setting it up straight away. And we don't get many shots like that in the rest of 60s Doctor Who. You know, stuff that lingers and takes us around a set and really sets the scene. I love the contrast there as well. You know, we've gone from dark and moody into kind of a, a busy, lit school corridor. It's straight away just again kind of drags you into the action. Can I pitch a big finished box set where, where it's like all the sort of minor extras from this episode and you get like a story for all of them, like all those students in the corridor and <laughs> policemen. Has the policeman cropped up? Some anything? earthly children. I think they did a short trip about him actually, but um, uh, what I really love about this scene here, if, I, if you'll excuse the terrible pun, is that even in their first scene together, you can see the chemistry between Barbara and Ian. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely some history there. <laughs> Again, it's a great little scene. It just establishes those two. And a lot of people forget that they are essentially the main characters for the first few serials. Like the Doctor focus comes into place really sort of halfway through season one. Ian and yeah. Barbara are very much. I mean, arguably for point. the whole time, they're 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 almost the main characters. It's it's only really once they leave that the Doctor becomes purely on his own. The main, the opening dynamic of the TARDIS team of all four of them, and later when Vicky swaps in for Susan, it's the whole team feels like a single main character. Yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that the TARDIS crew being fairly stable throughout the first two seasons compared to 
the third season where it is a bit more revolving doorsy sort of contributes to that. In terms of this episode itself, it's kind of a similar thing to Rose in 2005 where like, we're discovering the Doctor through the companion's eyes. Yeah, we're, we're following the ordinary Rose's people eyes. into the Doctor's world. There's a parallel there because she's solving this mystery and figuring out who the Doctor is throughout that episode as well. There's no exploding shop in this, though. No. <laughs> I don't think they could have afforded it. <laughs> well, they did it a couple of uh, decades later. They, they went back and did it in remembrance They to, in Coal Hill. That's true. I love the strange little dance with her hands that Susan <laughs> does here. It's You can instantly tell it's not normal. It's not You, you can tell she's the unearthly, even if you didn't have the title, as it were. Did they dial back her weirdness a bit from the pilot, though? I'm, I'm trying to think. Like, was she, like, a bit more out there in the original version? She certainly dressed a bit more out there, particularly when in the TARDIS later on. That was one of the few things that I uh, prefer about the pilot. I love that weird sort of almost alien costume that she's got in the TARDIS in there because it makes sense. She's gone back home. She's not seeing the humans. She can dress more as she would rather than as the schoolgirl. I think that's a thing. Like, as Susan went on, that's something that just got ebbed away over time, like any sort of weirdness or alienness about her. And she sort of became just like a... Still a sort of interesting character, but became just like a granddaughter or a young girl. Yeah, she still had moments here and there like I think the sensorites the sort of psychic power mm. sort of subplot and um stuff like in the Aztecs when she stands up to sort of not sort of pops all the um the ones who's saying you will be told who you're married and the fact that you won't let it stand but I won't go too much on about the other stories but it's nice when she does get those chances to be a bit yeah. less um modern well modern the the 60s <laughs> I quite like how she's She's a bridge between the Doctor and Ian and Barbara. Like, I get the impression with the mm. Doctor that he's pretty much just stayed in the TARDIS while on Earth in 1963, whereas Susan has gone to school and integrated in society and that kind of thing. And she's sort of in the middle of Ian and Barbara's humanness and the Doctor's alienness. Yeah, she's the balance between the two sort of halves of the dynamic, between the TARDIS team side that was and the side that's coming in, the human side, and I think it helps having her there. Um, it wouldn't be the same with just Barbara and Ian, as much as I love them. You you need that sort of contrast and bridge, as you say. We're on another beautifully lit scene here, just sort of in the car at night, and again it's contrasted with the school in the day and just immediate lighting contrast that really sort of deepens the mystery, I guess, when we're in the darker bits. Those classroom cutaway bits are shot interestingly. Like I, th I think the voiceover, I don't know if that was just like a practical thing, but it sort of it sort of adds to the for like Susan's uncomfortableness in that moment that you've got this disembodied voice. Yeah, I think I remember reading a behind the scenes thing about it, and basically the reason that it's shot so that it's focused on Susan from Barbara and Ian's perspective is because. Of course, the actors, William Russell and Carol, not Caroline Ford, um, Jacqueline Hill, 
they're, they're still in the car when they're saying these lines. They're not actually in the um, scene with Susan. I think they're piped in as recording. Yeah, as well. from the car set. William Hartnell's had a very relaxing shoot so far. <laughs> That's very different in the pilot as well, like how he is when he turns up. He's a bit, he's, he's like he pushes it a bit further in the pilot in terms of being a bit more scary. Yeah, the pilot version, he's a lot more just plain dark, whereas in the version we get, there is that darkness, but it's a bit less harsh. And he also has the sort of comedic side of laughing at them and so on and just sort of having oh, that grumpiness. twinkle in his eye. Yeah, it's kind of like more like extreme grumpiness rather than being like really dark and scary at times in the pilot. I think that like the dynamic between the Doctor and Susan is a bit, it feels a bit more uncomfortable in the pilot as well, that he's like just sort of ignoring her pleas to, um, to you know, let them go and all of that. It it really the pilot does a better job, I think, of hammering home that this is basically a kidnapping. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've got, we've actually got the doctor being very dark and very rash here. He's basically doing an alien abduction. Yeah, I mean, I think the way they show it later, I mean, it's clearly it's all because of Susan wanting to leave. If Susan had been happy to you know, not threatening to leave with Barbara and Ian, he might have eventually let them go, but he was so scared of losing Susan that he just instantly lashes out. And you can see that protective instinct he's got for her. Like in these early episodes, he doesn't seem to care about, you know, pe other people and that, but he always cares about Susan. She's his focus. And that's what sort of helps Barbara and Ian to help him develop into the person he became. In these twenty-three minutes, you like like that. You get so many little details, just like about characters and their dynamics and their backstories, and like I think more than you would do in some shows over a whole season. Like it's all just kind of really economically done in this episode. I think it also benefits, and it's probably one of the few Doctor Who episodes that does to be honest it benefits from being studio bound it really gives you this sort of weird creepy dark claustrophobic sense which is actually working very very hard to build up like when they went back in remembrance i don't connect that totter's yard with this totter's yard it looks so different it looks like a big open space um, and and the looks... sign on the doors being different uh, also makes it seem different. <laughs> yeah. It's spelled differently, isn't it? Like it's, uh, it's an extra T or a missing T. Um, uh, but... It's form an F-O-R man instead form of F-O-R-E man. Also, the other thing I like about this scene right now is uh, we've just missed it, but when Ian says it's alive, it's um, it's just so strange mm. to see the science teacher being the one who's sort of almost superstitious. Like, I, it makes me wonder if the line was perhaps written as it's live, like live, electrically charged or something, but it still somehow works, I think. Oh, and here's William Hartnell. I love this scene. There he is.
again, brilliantly shot, brilliantly directed. And he is so alien and standoffish. Mm. It's great. <laughs> not the police, then. Great way to not sound suspicious, Doctor. <laughs> I love the look on Barbara's face there when the doctor immediately after Barbara's contradicting his young man immediately turns to Ian and Barbara just has this look of, excuse me? It's nice to see that sort of thing in the 60s. Like usually they'd write a character like her as more in the background, but she's just straight up like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm here. Don't just ignore me. I really can't see a huge army battle happening with a Dalek in this junkyard. Just going back to what we were saying before. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, but it, it works better as being this sort of little claustrophobic pile of junk as opposed to this huge yard in the middle of London. Maybe this is like a, a different little corner of the yard that we didn't see in Remembrance. Is it the same yard in Attack of the Cybermen as well? I think it's um, supposed to be. Mm. Because the Remembrance one's definitely better than that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right, the yard here, and then also in the TARDIS, there's like so much thought given to dressing the set with all these little details. Yeah, Hartnell just wandering around playing with bits of junk in the yard and that kind of thing. It's absolutely brilliant. You can tell that they had far more time to think about this one than a lot of other stuff in this first series. I love the transition there. They did such a good job of, you know, realising it just straight from Barbara's face to her face and... Suddenly they're in there and everything changes. It's another nice dark to light contrast. And the TARDIS will never look this good again. I love the Doctor instantly being defensive about the TARDIS. What's wrong with it? This mix of, like, the sort of alien TARDIS stuff and then, like, little objects from history and, like, more human details, we don't really get it that much until, like, McGann, maybe? Because it's all, like, sort of pretty... It's, it's a bit cleaner. It makes and the TARDIS feel more like a home. Yeah, yeah. Like they've been travelling through history and picks up all this stuff. It's wildly different to any other spaceship design from the time.
So it's probably also the best variation of the costume. Yeah, it's an interesting look. Um, and the interesting thing with the line there is um, I love that you discovered television rather than you invented television. It almost like they obviously weren't prepared for the Doctor being a Time Lord or whatever at this stage, but they were already sort of implying a sort of alienness that, you know, you didn't invent it. You just discovered it. It's something that had already been invented. That's a major difference from the pilot, isn't it? In the pilot, they're from the 49th century or something like that. Yeah, it's almost like an unbound. Uh, so, like the doctor's being, you know, like grumpy and patronising, but he's also doing stuff that he does, like throughout the rest of the series, like sort of explaining stuff and teaching people about things and introducing them to new concepts. He's sort of, yeah, instinctively sharing that knowledge. I've heard it said that he's a totally different character in this, and that's not true at all. Everything that we see later is there. There's also some other stuff as well that just irons out over the course of the season. And this, like, I don't know how intentional that was, but if, again, like sort of so much other stuff we've talked about, it feels like unique for TV of that era to have like character arcs over the seasons, over the stories. Yeah, I've always wondered when people say about the new series, oh, there's finally character development and such, and it's clear you've never seen the Hartley. I mean, the way the Doctor develops from this selfish old man who only cares about his granddaughter, and by the end of his era, he's the hero we all know and love, and Barbara and Ian developing from being very cautious and hesitant about travelling in time and space. I mean, when they see the cave and being horrified and the Daleks, they want to go home and they the Doctor needs to break his own equipment to trick him into staying. And by the end, they're, they, yes, they still want to get home, but they're a lot more confident and a lot more bold and a lot less worried about. It's just there's so much character development, maybe not as much as in the modern era, but um, I think it's very clearly there, and I don't know how anyone who's watched it could miss it. Well, even in the next three episodes, there's that moment where the Doctor picks up that, that rock and is about to to use it, isn't there? And then, is it Barbara who stops him? Ian. Oh, Ian. I love the Doctor's lame excuse for it. Oh, I was going to get him to uh, draw a map for our way. <laughs> yeah, sure, Doctor. That's very believable. <laughs> You'd certainly... Uh... You'd certainly not get in trouble for thinking that the Doctor was a villain from this episode. Mm. I love that line. <laughs> Especially there too. Susan almost seems afraid of the Doctor herself there with, I mustn't. I really do love that TARDIS set. It's a shame that it, it did change and alter and obviously for practical reasons it had to, and you know, it had varying amounts of studio space to work with, but obviously with it being one of the more prominent sets in this episode, you get the full TARDIS as it's intended to be.
then again, I quite like the idea of dimension shifting and that kind of thing. Speaking of her being that bridge, just just in that moment, you can see Susan being like a bit torn of like looking back and forth, thinking should she stay, should she go with the Doctor? Oh, absolutely. She she says to him, "I'd rather leave the TARDIS and you." So bluntly, but then the second he's like, "Oh, very well," and goes to the console, and she thinks he's actually letting her go. She seems so reluctant as soon as yeah. she looks at Barbara and Ian, and it's a nice bit of character work that you know she's not afraid to bluff and try to stand up to her grandfather, but. She isn't as confident as she puts on about, you know, wanting to stay behind and live in the modern era instead of travel. More brilliant effects work, the dematerialisation. Mm, absolutely. Obviously, this effect of the character's face is sort of merged with the other stuff that's going on as well. It's something that actually gets repeated at the end of the season as well, at the end of Reign of Terror. Oh, no, it's season two, isn't it? It's Stephen and Vicky. Yeah, it's at the end of the time meddler. Yes, it is. Is it a star field with a bit of speech we get at the end of Reign of Terror? Yeah, and um, speaking of that, I was a bit disappointed they actually cut that scene in the Tales of the TARDIS version. Interesting that the dematerialisation leaves Ian and Barbara unconscious here, but it's absolutely fine every other time. I've always assumed that was like, you know, they're humans and the TARDIS has never had humans in it before, and so maybe it's, I don't know, hurt them unintentionally or something, and then it gets used to them. But um, it it is interesting to see that, yeah, there's there's always an explanation if you try to think of something. Another excellent final shot there. And there we go. Nice slow fade out. Brilliant episode. Absolutely fantastic. Oh, absolutely. It's such a perfect start to the series and such a perfect start to the team. It's just brilliant. And the next three episodes, I think they suffer because they're next to such an amazing opening. But I think they're pretty good as well, because that's where you get all those bits of character work we were talking about. Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. They follow up on it so well. But, um, yeah, I think those pre- – not previous, those next three episodes, they they work better if you consider them they're a separate thing, because if you try to pin it all as one story, they just become, oh, they're the less good ending. Whereas if you look at them on their own, they're actually pretty good. I mean, they're not as great as that first episode's first story, but – they're still enjoyable and they still have a lot of great character material in them. It's yeah, it's they're just unfortunate that they follow such an exceptional mm-hmm. opening episode. I mean, that's that's flawless, and it's because, as we said before, they they had a second chance to do it. They had a chance to make it better, um, and it just it it does have this sort of slickness of production that, because of the way Doctor Who was produced at the time, nothing else in the era of at all does 
um, just even things like, you know, having the extra go to think about lighting and positioning and the business with Hartnell and sort of playing around with the junk in the junkyard and all this sort of thing. It, it just really, really does make it a standout production. Um, and the other three episodes, they're great as well. You know, it's a program finding its feet. It's a program sort of figuring out what it is and what it it's going to be. But um, yeah, it, it's just so so exceptionally done but i think that first episode really really does make it it just sort of it shows that doctor who can be something exceptional straight away anyhow that was the episode that was an unearthly child um and i I thought it was absolutely excellent uh is there anything that either of you would like to add before we sign off um I think between this and when we covered it as part of the season by season, there's not really much more I can say. I just, I love this era and it starts off so well. And yeah, I, I'm always happy to rewatch it. And it's been interesting to do it this in this format instead. Aye, absolutely. It's, it, it's good to sort of watch it as opposed to just talk about it as well in one of these podcasts. I think it's like, it stands up so well that, if someone had never seen an episode of Doctor Who, you could recommend this as a starting point to introduce the concepts of the TARDIS and the Doctor. Like even the thing about you know Ian's line about the TARDIS being alive, and then that comes back in like the Matt Smith era with uh, you know Id- um, Idris and and all of that. So I mean, arguably, it comes back even sooner. I mean, in the Edge of Destruction, when the Doctor's so oh, it's just yeah. a machine, and yet it is warning them and I mean they they really followed that up surprisingly early and surprisingly well for the era. I think it's interesting that apart from a few hints here and there, that episode is basically all of the backstory we get about the Doctor up until the war games. Like, okay, the time meddler gives us a little bit and there are hints here and there, like you say, edge of destruction, but in terms of any solid information about who the Doctor is, where he's from, that kind of thing. We get nothing else until the war games for the entirety of the 60s. That is now the status quo. And it, it's it's fine. It works. It's great. That's a big difference with the pilot, isn't it? That they were, they were implied to be humans from the far future rather than aliens. I'm so glad they ditched that. Mm. Mm, absolutely. Although I think even if they had gone with the pilot version, it'd be easy to... Um, retcon it later because they just say they're from the 49th century they don't say oh we're from earth in the 49th century like they could still be from gallifrey or mars or anywhere they um they just have to be from that time lots of planets have a 49th century (laughs) (laughs) on that note we shall leave it there it's been incredibly fun watching that and chatting about it with you both Uh, we will do more of these commentaries in the future and of course this podcast will be back as normal next week where we will uh well we'll be looking at the star beast that's the plan uh so thank you very much for joining me uh and goodbye mansoor goodbye and thank you very much for joining me and goodbye to jimmy thanks for having me And we'll be back for more podcasting soon. Goodbye now.